0: The Schwab family name is famous across the AFL and has influenced administration, umpiring, playing and coaching in the sport. At age 24, Cameron Schwab was named CEO of one of the sport's cornerstone teams, the Richmond Football Club, the club that he supported as a boy. For most of the next 25 years, Cameron stood up and helped Richmond, Melbourne and Fremantle in times of dire need. He's known for taking on some of the sport's most difficult and daunting challenges, but not without controversy. He's had to fire some of his heroes and dealt with being fired himself. Now Cameron heads up a leadership consultancy called Design CEO, where he passes on his lessons to leaders across a variety of industries. I'm Cody Royal, and this... Is where others won't.
1: Cameron Schwab, welcome to the show, mate. That's great to be here, Cody. I've been, uh, I've become an avid listener. So, uh, as you know, I've listened to Michael Lombardi's podcast now, I reckon 10 times and uh, sat each time sitting there writing a set of notes and it's become my go-to podcast to send to anyone looking to uh, make an important appointment in and around an AFL club. So, well done on that.
0: Oh, amazing. Thank you. I really appreciate that and uh, yeah, full uh, credit to Mike, just uh, uh, an amazing guy and, and someone that I'd love to pick his brain as much as I can just around leadership and, and coaching and sports. So, yeah, I appreciate that, mate.
1: No, and it's a, and it, there was a lot of stuff which just transcended, I think, you know, that you know whilst we uh, – you know, the, the thing that I'm enjoying about your work is that you, you bring it back to – you know, it obviously relates to people like myself who come from, you know, the high-performance sport world. But, you know, part of the challenge for all of us is that I think there's different things in, in sport which have real value. And there's other things in sport which people think have a value which perhaps don't, and mm-hmm. um, like the stuff that you're, uh, you know, and th- and therefore becomes a distraction. And whereas if you can just cut through on the stuff which actually has a value, particularly as it relates to people in their development and uh, as it relates to the role you want them to play, uh, I think there's some um, there's some key learnings in that for everyone. Well, let's start there because. I've written about
0: experience and tenure quite a bit. And it was kind of one of the more controversial chapters of my book. And I've kind of been beating that drum ever since. And and you've been on both sides of this coin in terms of being the super inexperienced guy. And then also being the tenured guy, you know, you were what appointed CEO of Richmond at at 24. Is that right?
1: I was, yeah. And it was, um, and I'd only actually worked uh, six years my whole life or less than six years in, in my my life yeah so it was because i went straight from school and worked in at the melbourne football club at that time and then got the opportunity going to go richmond yeah i was 24 um but i'd been in uh, in recruiting for the previous four maybe five years so and, and i fell into it in some ways yeah uh, but i grew but i grew up in the game and, and perhaps in in um in in other ways had had a, a much deeper experience than it than a 24-year-old would normally have in in the sport itself, but I certainly hadn't had that in regard to the leadership elements that the role was going to definitely um, impact me and expect of me, uh, and uh, and that that certainly took some time to work that out.
0: So walk us through that. You know, it, even in terms of, you know, majority of my audience are North American. So just explain to everyone, I mean, obviously, so you get the role at 24 CEO of Richmond who uh, have just won uh, another flag, but at that time we're really struggling. This is an iconic team in in the AFL. You know, one of the the kind of four core uh, teams, massive supporter base, massive pressure, Uh, but clubs not going well and they appoint a a 24 year old CEO, like just walk us through that experience, um, from your end in terms of a, the scenario and then b like what, what you were thinking.
1: Uh, well, the scenario probably, uh, I'd been recruiting manager at Melbourne Football Club, which again is a big iconic club and actually the originators of, of Australian football. And and I grew up as a Richmond supporter and was very fanatical about it, but also grew up in a very much a Richmond household because my, my father, Alan Schwab, was the the secretary of Richmond and secretary in those days is the, the same as being the CEO, if you like. And mm-hmm. and so even, even at a very young age, I because of an unusual surname, that I, uh, you know, as soon as I had any um, means by which I had to communicate who I was to the world, people would ask me straight away whether I was any relation to the bloke at Richmond and and probably, and I, and I joke about it now, but there's almost like a collective of Schwabies, you know, that the only Schwabs in, in Melbourne were all working in football or, or playing or umpiring actually because my father's brother umpired a grand final and his son, Played and coached Hawthorne, played, played in premierships at Hawthorne, coached Hawthorne. So it was very much so the narrative of my childhood and uh, and probably in some ways lost my own identity as a child in that, but I was, I was so proud of it that it didn't matter. And then uh, I started working in football because uh, I loved the game at Melbourne, found myself in recruiting at a time when drafting and these things were, were starting to come into the sport. And because right. That was represented such a big change. And I, I was fortunate to be the young person probably being prepared. None of the dogma, none of the things which had probably or potentially held other people back applied to me. And, and Melbourne went from having not played in the finals for over 20 years to, to getting through to a grand final. And, uh, and I'd recruited a uh, majority of the players who played in that game. And I was at a game and I'm at a, just watching a game and a fellow by the name of Paddy Ganane, who was a great Richmond person, tapped me on the shoulder and asked me whether I had any, any interest in working for Richmond and I assumed it was in recruiting. And he said, oh, no, we, we'd like you to be the CEO. And I was probably at a stage where I'm thinking that maybe that will be some opportunity I'll get to have in some stage of my life. And uh, right. and I remember bringing my father who was now, he'd gone from Richmond and he was then working as executive commissioner of the VFL. Um, which becomes the AFL. Uh, he, he, he's, he, his advice was just fantastic. My, my father was a wonderful person at answering a question with a question, and and uh, and it's a it's a terrific skill to have. I'd also he's also what I'd call a skilled interrupter. So he he was a wonderful listener at that time, but he'd also had this ability to just uh, ask a question or put a little bit of pressure on at different times for me to think a little bit more deeply about. You know, whatever position I was taking, and and the position I'd taken was that it was too early for me. And he asked me the question: Would I, would I be interested if they are offering me the role as the CEO of the Essex Heights Football Club, which was the junior football club I played for when I was a kid? And and I was almost dismissive of him, and I just said, of course, of course, I could do that job, you know. And he said, um, he said, uh, you think that's an easy job, dear, running the Essex Heights Football Club, you know? And anyone who's actually been in a in a junior club would know how tough that actually is you know that that is a very difficult and challenging you know situation for for anyone to take on but all of a sudden what he did in doing that was he he made the job accessible to me and the other thing that he said was that if you do the job now it'll be a tough job but if you're doing the job in 40 years time it'll also be a, a tough job it's there's certain roles that you're going to play in life which will never be easy roles for you and and so the value of of the role, yes, you'll get more experience, you'll grow, you'll you'll improve, but it'll always be difficult for you. You'll you'll never feel totally, you know, comfortable. And and it was a it was it was a terrific means by saying, okay, yeah, it's going to be hard for you, but yes, I think you can do it. And and basically, I just took it on. And but unfortunately, the Richmond Football Club of that era was a very different <laughs> Richmond Football Club to the one that he'd had a great deal of success in. Well, basically, we're on the bottom of the ladder and we're broke. And uh, and it probably ended up being a bit of my thing and then I ended up taking on these roles and uh, where clubs were, you know, at their lowest ebb, but it was certainly not, not by design. I wasn't looking for them. They were, they were basically the jobs where clubs were looking for CEOs effectively. So so I was able to take that on. It was a really, uh, it was a wonderful experience. I grew up as a Rich- Richmond supporter. I loved the club. I loved its folklore. I got to work with, you know, people who were, you know, iconic figures in my mind certainly but also had the situation where I was at a club at a time when we were finishing up a number of veteran players who were also my, my heroes as, as as kids so I had some of those players who were four and five and six years older than me yeah, sitting in my office and I was explaining to them that they were no longer players of the Richmond Football Club so there was a few sleepless nights in it I, I've got to say um, and and sometimes we can, we can gloss over our own reflections of of those early learnings, but um, yeah, no, they were, they were they were pretty deep, and um, and I would never I wouldn't change it for anything. Uh, but in some ways, I had my life job when I was only very very young, and um, and probably then spent the next twenty five years in one way or another, you know, evolving and developing how I should lead, and um, and having that opportunity was um, you know was unique, but also I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for. Did you feel like a leader when you took that job? No, I didn't. Um, there were certain aspects of my, what I brought. I felt a degree of comfort in as in, I, I felt that I had enough knowledge of the game itself to at least have the sorts of conversations you need to have in that regard. But I, I'd never led anything. Like I, I wasn't a school prefect. I wasn't, um, captain of a footy team or anything like that. I I was just a young person trying to find my way. But I had a lot of experience being around leaders, like a lot, probably more than most people. Even growing up with my father, uh, we would have – there's a wonderful coach, Tommy Hayfie at uh, Richmond Football Club, who's an iconic figure in the game, who I would be in the room after – And it might be at my house. It might be down the Punt Road Oval in Richmond. It might be at Tommy's house where I'd just tag along with my dad at eight, nine, ten years of age. And I'd just sit there and they didn't have the benefit of the replay of the game. They would just try and almost rebuild the game, replay the game in their minds and they'd talk about it. And I'd be sitting there not saying a word. And and I remember thinking, I, I remember that. You know, when they'd be talking about a part of the game, I'd go, Yeah, I remember that bit. And then they would explain, you know, the importance of the significance as they were debating whether the player had done the right thing, wrong thing, that type of thing. And these were the people who were the leaders in the sport. And then then I start working as an 18 year old at the Melbourne Football Club. And Ron Barassi's the coach. So probably as two bigger figures as there is in the sport uh, are the two mentors of, and my father's executive commissioner of the AFL. And, and I get to see and, – and I see Ron Barassi comes back to Melbourne with all the expectations that he's going to bring the magic dust and, the you know, the premierships are going to follow because he played in six at Melbourne. He would coached two at Carlton, He coached two at North Melbourne. Why wouldn't they follow at Melbourne when he comes back to his club? And we didn't make the finals for the next five years. And and I, I spent the first few years of that role just as, like, as an office boy at the Melbourne Football Club. I, I'm editing Ron Barassi's tapes for him, you know, because the only thing I actually brought into the – into the conversation of any level of uh, capability was that I was very good at doing the mixtape, you know, where you do little tape for your, you know, the the 17-year-old love letter if you like, you know, and and I offered to to edit Brass's tapes for him. And um, so I'm getting this wonderful education as not only looking at what he thinks is important because I've just had a full cap sheet of paper and and a a couple of videos really, Um, but I'm also in conversation with him and i'm I'm in the room when he's talking to the players. I'm in the room when he's debating the futures of the players all these things and i'm and this has happened from the age of ten through to twenty really so this is just just, just it might be you know that I know it's often debunked the ten thousand hours, but perhaps I'm getting that in in my own way, but I'm also around people who are having to make decisions on other people's lives every day of their life and and perhaps, you know, for all the stuff that we want to talk about with leadership, that, that's the hardest bit, you know, that you know, can the person make it? Can't the person make it? If they can't make if they can make it, how do we get them there quicker? Or all, all the stuff that needs to actually happen. Uh, the only thing I would say, though, was still very much at the end of the command and control way of leading as well. Yeah. Like, I saw some pretty brutal leadership. Um, when I say brutal, not as in physically brutal, but gee, there wasn't much much dust left on the shelf after Brace had gone through the team. I know, I know that, you know, and and uh, and I saw that, and I assume that that's how it happened. That's what happens. And and then when I find myself in a leadership role, I'm thinking that's what I have to do. And and, and because I'm younger than everyone else, I, the last thing I want to do is be seen as soft and weak. And mm-hmm. But it wasn't who I was. So I, I probably spent the first few years trying to lead in a way of which, one, I had no experience with. And secondly, it was so different to the person who I was. And 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 really, uh, that was the, the first big lesson that I learned, that you have to – your leadership has to be in some way – a true extension of all parts of you, you know, and, uh, and I got to, uh, work that out over time. And, and I had a wonderful mentor, a guy by the name of Neville Crow, who was always encouraging me to do that. Just be yourself, Cameron, just be yourself, Cameron. And whenever I wasn't, he goes, uh, he goes, I'm not sure that was you talking. Then. You know, I reckon that that sounded like someone else talking. You're trying to be someone who you're not. And, uh, and so all of the, even, you know, people now talk about the openness and the vulnerability and the importance of those sorts of things. If, if nothing else, that's just being an extension of who you are, you know, being comfortable with actually putting your stuff out there in, totally. in a way which, um, which is, uh, you yeah, know, and the, the term they use is authentic, but it's really just a, um, if you're not being authentic, you're lying really, aren't you? So yeah, it's just being true to who you are. Putting on a mask,
0: yeah. I think it's a really interesting point that you raised. I mean, we kind of default to this like yeah obviously state when athletes who grew up with a dad or a mum in sport you know come through and, and and they seem to take on those superpowers you Gary Ablett's you know the, the whole father son crew but I when you think about it from a just a raw leadership perspective and a coaching perspective like off the top of my head you know Bill Belichick's dad literally wrote the book on scouting in, in profession yeah. no, and,
1: I, and i got onto that really early and i and, and i almost will i almost read that with tears in my eyes because I, I lost my dad young and um but to, to 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 actually realize that there is some part of his dad in him every day he coaches is just a there's, there's something beautiful about that
0: yeah and i i was listening to Luke Walton recently as well, you know, just about as famous a figure as you get in in the NBA in terms of his father, Bill Walton, and he's become an extraordinary coach, Sean McVay. You know, like as you were talking there, I was was trying to think, like these guys that didn't necessarily play the sport but were around leadership like you were talking about, I think it's just a really interesting idea. I'd never considered it like that in terms of that kind of almost vicariously picking up leadership
1: just by being around it no, it's interesting because cause w- w- one of the things which I worked out early is that I-, I saw the I saw the humanity in the heroes early as well, uh, and and, and their failures. You know, even including my father. You know, so um, my, my parents separated when I was in my teens, and it was pretty messy. And and you know, so I had this situation where, you know, I'd wait for my father to come home every night and, and, and the best 10 minutes of my day was him sitting on the end of my bed and we'd be talking about the Tigers, you know, how, who's you know, the Richmond footy club and um, and I'd try and bring – he'd want to talk about the kids' stuff, but i just want to talk about the footy really, yeah. you know. He's Royce Hart's knee going to come up this week, you know. Um, he'd go recruiting in Tasmania and I'd say, can you come home with another Royce Hart It was just a super, super player? And and he he Royce Hart had gone. I'd gone from Batman, Superman. Now it's Royce Hart. Really, it was that sort of thing. They were my superheroes, and and I'm an art, and I draw, and I was an art. it. And so I, I used to draw comic books, and then I started drawing footballers, and I probably still do in some ways. But the the just that, uh, and then then as, a, as the conversations went further, and I got older, and I found myself privy to more of them that that they weren't talking about my superheroes. Superpowers, they're talking about their kryptonite. And and so I, I remember them, you know, would, would say they'd be talking about Royce and saying, Look, I don't know if he can turn anymore because he'd had bad knees. He got bad knees early in his career. And he, he would have probably played 300 games now, but he gets finished up in 100, you know, 150, 160. And, and I couldn't believe they're having this conversation about Royce, you know, that, that Royce mightn't play anymore. Royce might be able to play what we want. He might be able to do what we need him to be able to do anymore. And uh, and you know a couple of years later he's he's basically brought in and has to retire. And so having the the conversations aren't it takes the folklore you, you build off the folklore, but it takes some of that out of it. And you realise that th- there's this weight that these guys carry uh, on on an everyday basis, and every so often I would see it play out in all sorts of unhealthy ways, and 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 i saw that with my father and my father was a drinker um and i saw and he made some poor choices in in terms of his own life and and i saw that in other people as well and i've definitely done that myself you know so seeing the the humanity of their their leadership um where your heroes become human was a really big lesson to learn and i learned it young and and so even in watching the Tigers win the premiership on the weekend and, and there's, there's a um, – and I get an enormous amount of enjoyment from that, particularly because, you know, most of my family barrack for Richmond. And, but there's probably an element to it where I know I can't quite enjoy it the same way, you know, as, as someone who hadn't or hasn't had that experience in, in, its, own, in its own right. And, and, I, and, again, I wouldn't exchange it for anything. But then when I stepped into leadership in my own right, I, I was prepared for at least that part of it. Right. That I knew that I was going to have to make choices on people's lives. Um, otherwise, I wasn't effective. I couldn't carry the title. I, I couldn't do that. But also was aware that at some stage the choices were going to be made in regard to me as well. And having and knowing that equation becomes – uh, means that even now, and, and I got sacked twice as, as a CEO. But whilst I'm, I was disappointed with that outcome. I have never been bitter on that outcome. I've never, I've never um, got angry in a way where I can't still love the game or I can't still talk the game. Or, you know, there, there is There's little inherent disappointments if things that you don't think you're treated fairly with. But I also know there was probably another. You know, however many other occasions where it could have happened, <laughs> where it didn't happen. If you know what I mean, you know, like, you know, that's it, that's what got me in the end. But there could have been a couple of others, really. <laughs> you know, so, so you know, it's um, it's a, uh, you know, so, yeah. I still have a wonderful optimism about the sport, even though I've seen um, and experienced um its challenges. Uh, and, and I think what, if the if the game's grown up or all sports grown up in any way, is that we're we're actually the game's never been harder than what it is now, any form, any form of the game. Um, but I think at least we're now starting to have better conversations as to the weight of all of that on, on whether it's the athletes, the coaches, the administrators, the, the people who are who are basically you know, taking their their love of the game and turning it into their, their lives you know, I heard this wonderful you know, interview with Steve Kerr where he talks about the you know the values of, of, of his team, and and he, and he says that you know that their number one value is joy. Well, I grew up with ruthless Richmond, you know, <laughs> like you know, as ruthless was what you had to have as a value, you know. Right. But his values joy, and and that that's a pretty quantum. And I, and Brendan Gale, CEO of, um, of Richmond, I caught up with him the week before the grand final, and he, and I said. You've managed, you've managed to turn rich Richmond from ruthless Richmond into humble Richmond, you know. Now, they're, 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 you know, if we're gonna, there's got to be a continuum with those two things on the end, doesn't there? You know, ruthless and humble, you know, if you like. And, and, and I, I would say the humble club's a much better club because it can just do things that a ruthless club can't do. And, um, and ruthless just lacks dimension. It lacks insight. It lacks... Um, nimbleness, if you like, whereas a a humble club keeps giving itself second, third, fourth and fifth chances, which in reality sport requires.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There is that red thread through, you know, all sport. And I I follow pretty much every major sport team sport around the world and, and and try to look for those commonalities and in the sustained success. And and that is certainly one, it just has to be just a, a, a Schwab story. When I was doing my work experience, I was fifteen, just started playing at Chargers. Stephen Ick was one of my coaches growing up. And he got me down to Hawthorne. And so every morning I used to walk into Peter Schwab's office.
1: Yeah. Uh, I yeah.
0: had to go and get his donut from Glenfree Road and uh, his coffee in the <laughs> morning and then cut up cut up the uh, the tape and uh, make sure the gym was was clean every morning for the boys when they came in. I Got to train with him a couple of times, which I was a Hawthorne supporter, so
1: uh, Peter's a he's a wonderful, wonderful person, Peter. And um you know, again, you know, and, and probably he's, he's the classic. He, he took Hawthorne into a preliminary final with, with what would actually be relatively average team and um and get sacked as coaches do and then never gets another opportunity, you know, which is crazy. You know, that you know, that somehow people wouldn't learn from and that probably goes back to your experience question, the little you know we really talked about that why wouldn't someone in that pedigree get a second chance of coaching when, when Alan jeans left uh, Hawthorne and and embarrassingly I not embarrassingly we pointed in coach of Richmond which was a big thing at the time and I said uh, okay which of because there was a whole group of these great Hawthorne people who were retiring and I said oh and we were the first club to go with a full-time assistant coach they just weren't a thing at that stage and uh and um, and Alan was also older, so we thought we'd bring someone through. It was like the first of the succession plans. And and he said, Oh no, it'd be Schwabby and I'll go, Oh no, he's my cousin, you know, like it's actually so I'm gonna appoint my cousin and, and so of all of those great Hawthorne people, Peter was seen as actually the one who was gonna step up and inevitably he, he does and he coaches Hawthorne. Um Trent Crowe hits the post in a in a game and otherwise they're into a grand final, you know. And two years later, he's not coaching the club anymore. And I think you know, it's so often that we go, and particularly with people who are learners, like I get that there's some people, it wouldn't matter how many times they had that experience, but Peter Schwab, if nothing else, is a wonderful learner. And um, that's why he survived the game for as long as he did as a player. He, he basically spent 200, you know, 180 games being the 17th best player in the team. That, that takes some doing, you know. And then and he, there were definitely occasions where he was the best player, don't get me wrong. Any, any, but he probably at no stage could he take his place in the side for granted. And he's a wonderful role player. And they end up being the great coaches, those guys. Um, I just wonder if the system was any different now. And it's good to see, you know, guys like Brett Rappin getting another chance at the moment. But Australian sport doesn't treat its um, its uh, its two, three, four, five four, five-year coaches very well, even though clearly they benefit from the experience of having done it. Uh, if they're learners, you know, there's some people, as I said, wouldn't wouldn't matter if they did it a thousand times; they'd, you know, they'd they'd still fall at the same hurdle. Yeah, you've hit on something
0: there that I've talked about before on the show, which will blow people's minds if you're not familiar with the AFL. But essentially, well, we're talking when Adelaide haven't made their hire yet, but if the the 18 head coaches in the AFL, I think it's only Brett Ratton that's on his second chance. There's one coach that has yeah, has
1: yeah. got Wusher, but I guess he didn't really – he wasn't fired. Oh, no, he had a bit, no, his time had come up. You know, he, he, he'd run his race. So, so maybe, yeah, two,
0: maybe two out of the 18 coaches right now are on their second chance or their second go-round. So everyone else is yeah. in their first appointment, which – yeah, going back to my experience thing is kind of really bizarre, even from an
1: ex player perspective. Yeah. And that's the, the Michael Lombardi, Everyone likes the new car smell line that I really enjoyed, you know, that um, if you, if you put uh, a particularly yeah, a guy who was seen to have failed, like, you know, the Belichick, you know, the Cleveland Browns uh, experience is up for grabs. It was, you know, was a club in turmoil basically as well. So, um, There'd be those, and there'd be no doubt he'd say he'd made mistakes. And the one thing i I know about Belichick is he owns up to his mistakes, which is um, particularly in, in with the team. I, I'm not sure if he does it externally as much, but he definitely does. You know, from whatever you hear in the context of the team, and 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 if if someone's actually at their most fundamental level a, a learner, and they've got a they've got you know a capacity to unlearn as well as in they recognize you know there's parts of themselves that if they had their time again they, they would definitely do different and they and they've made and taken steps for it not to happen again well they're they're the best they're the best chances aren't they you know and particularly because there was something about them in the first place which was encouraging enough in them that they got selected and and then you know, and I, I, I think about it in my own context, someone saw enough in me at 24 to appoint me as a CEO. But doesn't you know, I, the phone's not ringing the hook off at the moment to appoint me at 55. You know, so that's that's the that's the, the weird thing. And I, I'm not, not run around seeking it, but it's actually I often think that I go, well, how come you know? And and it would be because there's actually to, to put anyone in front of a group of people, you you then have to not only explain the future, but you have to explain the past and. And, and, you know, the past has already made its mind up, right, you know, in some ways, even if it's not correct, but it's made its mind up in lots of ways. And uh, that's why, you know, the wonderful – how old Belichick? He'd be in his, he'd be in his late, mid to late 60s, I'd say, yeah, now. Yeah. Wasn't he? Yeah, mid-60s, I I, would I can't think of many AFL coaches who have coached, you know, that long. You know, there would be – yeah, you know, it'd be very. I don't think any. Maybe Jock McHale or back in the really early days. So it's know uh, and, and people are much healthier in their sixties now than what what they were back in the day as well. But yeah, but that's that the value of um, uh, of that experience is 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 just enormous. You know, look, it's um, you know, it's a um, you know, we obviously we, there are all sorts of means by which we learn, but there's no doubt the most in the most valuable learning is you know, our best teacher is our failure, you know and you know and and you know there's organizations I know who won't recruit people unless they're failed, because I want to know how they bounce back. You know? and I want to have the conversation with them. so what did you do about it when 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 your life was in turmoil, when you've lost your job, you know how, how did you how did you go about rebuilding your identity? How did you go about um, working out whether this was still the person that you wanted to be. And and when you came to that determination, you know, how did you go about convincing others that you were in fact that person? And if they can do all that, well, they're, they're pretty valuable asset.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: it's funny you say that. Today I saw a clip,
0: uh, I think it was actually this afternoon, went just after the, the Arsenal Man U game and they asked Roy Keane whether he would want to go back into management. And talking of, you know, the past having kind of made up its mind. I found it really refreshing from him. He said, look, I'd love to, but I think I'm down the pecking order because of my reputation preceding me. And and, I thought, and he actually says, and he's, you know, some failures. But to your point, I think if you can convince people that those failures, that you've learnt from them. And I think he, he seems to have appeared to uh, and taken a step back and gone into assistant, coaching roles under Martin O'Neill, who in himself is an extremely accomplished coach. Um, it's almost like yeah. that Belichick kind of idea of he could have come out of Cleveland and said, no, I'm a head coach. Now went back to his mentor and said, I need to keep learning. And, you know, spent another couple of years under Parcells and then comes out as the Belichick that we know today.
1: That, that kind of humility is, uh, is, is important. Yeah. And, but it's also, they've got to earn a living. <laughs> In some cases, those guys, right. you know, so so there's actually a reality for a lot of them, you know, that they've got to get on with the rest of their life, you know. That, you know, what is it that, you know, particularly for a Belichick, you, you sense that whilst he enjoys being, uh, you know, the head coach, I think he enjoys the support more. You know, he, he, it's, for him, it's 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 a um, almost a, a a vehicle for his. His creativity, his love his, uh, there'd be there be all sorts of things. If he was born in a different generation, it would be totally different. But he would have always found something very specific to um, to push his almost his genius onto, if you like. And and it's funny because when I, I went back to art school in my fifties, and and I found exactly the same versions of the fanatical young athletes as fanatical young artists. They're so just different expressions of their. Um, their love of something and and almost the process of, of getting the outcomes that they were seeking was was identical and and i found that you know the the the, the people who you would consider to be the uh, the clever young um, or, or you know the the more gifted artists the ones who could you know draw things to look like things that is how we normally interpret that W- weren't the people who come the end of the, the program were creating the most interesting art or the, the ones which created the best conversations, uh, the ones who were really, um, you are looking at it and looking at them and thinking, wow, there's some depth in this, you know. And the same way as, you know, Luke Hodge still runs around at his age, that Tom Brady still runs around at his age, that they, I saw that same thing in these sometimes quite eccentric young people who were who are now trying to express themselves through whatever medium art uh, actually provided for them. And I had a, a interesting conversation during that or I had a wonderful mentor as a as an as a tutor, a guy by the name Maraf Ishak, who's a who's a wonderful artist, uh, but he he'd actually uh, he came to me about halfway through my first year of fine art and he said, You 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 do art like a CEO he said. And it was like the it was almost like the ultimate put down, you know. And, and basically, because he was saying you're closing out the conversation, where whereas art is about encouraging the conversation and and taking the dogma and all the biases and all that sort of stuff you may hold, you know, you've got to put that to one side here. And and I and I think that the best coaches I worked with were were those who would do that. And, and it might have been in simple things. It wouldn't be in you know the same way as as perhaps the game expects of coaches these days, but you know, Ron Barassi for all the stuff that, you know, the standards he set and he's famous for creating the running game, the play on game, mm-hmm. you know, came out of him, you know, or, or he's, or someone who convinced him. And I think that was probably normal Len Smith or one of those guys back in the day, but, but he, he, he was, a, he had the enough um, commitment to do something which really um is now an express as the sport expresses its way in in totally different to how it was for for decades prior mainly because of the influence of Lombardi. Let's talk about the flip side
0: now so you, you come out you've 25 years in the AFL you know three different clubs that you turn them around becomes your your kind of label if you will to now. And I'd love for you to tell us about your company yeah. as well and and kind of how you've snowballed all of those learnings to now helping modern leaders avoid some of the, the pitfalls that you had, but also in what is really a changing
1: landscape of leadership? Um, probably I had the benefit that I'd been sacked previously. <laughs> that sounds a weird thing, but <laughs> that, and I didn't handle it well as in, um, I was in, in my mid thirties and I, and I got myself into, into a pretty rotten place to be honest. And, um, so there was a certain determination not to do that, but I, 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 I can't say I totally avoided it in, in that way. But so what I, I had a feeling that um, that I there was a value in the learnings that I'd had, and what I'll do because of what you do if, if you're a, someone who's a mark got a marketing background, you, you you look at the market and you say the market needs one of these, and, and the market certainly valued people who'd been in elite sport. But I found myself doing a whole lot of work I hated doing, because mm-hmm. effectively what I was doing was that there were organisations who were basically looking to outsource the critical decisions they should be making to someone, you know, who thought they thought had that type of background. And you, they'd say, you help us become a great team, and and I'd go, well, yeah, I can do some stuff around that and all that, but the, the leaders weren't buying; they were, they just didn't want to do it themselves. So so that's when I end up. Um, I got on a tram one day and I uh, and I went out to a. Um, there's an old primary school in Preston who do a course on, they call it folio preparation, which had basically put an art folio together to take to fine art school. And, and I rocked up there and I got in and I just had my notebooks from, you know, cause I, I've always drawn. And um, so I then studied fine art for a few, for a few years. And after, after those years, I then realized there was, I've got my mojo back a little bit, by almost by circumstances. And, what I thought was that I'm going to talk to the stuff that I believe in and if people are interested in it, well, they will find me if I'm good enough with the way I put it out to the world. And so there might only be a very small proportion of people out there who are interested in this thing, but at least it's going to be working, it's going to be work I believe in and 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 that's how it came about. And And the core of it really is that everyone wanted to talk about culture and team and these things how do we? well in sport i think of team as an outcome and culture as an outcome you know so have we got a great culture yeah we have why because the behaviors are really good you know so how do we get the behaviors right well i think the behaviors the core of the behaviors center around the habits both good and bad that we actually have and it centers around the identity that we actually have of ourselves do we see ourselves as leaders and and the identity thing actually again came out of art because it took. I'm a, I'm a practicing artist, but do you reckon I can actually say that I'm an artist? I can't say it. I say I do art, right? Yeah. Rather than I'm an artist, because artist sounds like it's a bit wanky in it, you know. Now you're a footy administrator. I was happy saying I was a footy administrator, but I don't reckon I was ever happy saying I was a leader. So it's one of those things. So and I believe in this thing about the habits we have and the um, and the identity. You know, and they, they both work off each other. So if you've got really good habits, the identity becomes more secure and the things that work from it. And from that, you then define the – and then from that, the behaviours which you think are important will emerge and therefore the culture will come from it. And so I see team and culture as an outcome. So I work very much on the behaviours and the things which impact on the behaviours. And the core of it boils down to four habits, basically. And, and it's a daily habit, weekly, monthly, every three months. So whether that's habit or, or rhythm or routine, I'm not really sure. But the core of it also is that we recruit people on what we think they can bring to the team. But we actually know what we want them to bring. And that's probably been one of the major differences I've noticed in in sport and business. We, we, people aren't sure what they want the person to do in order to find out what they want them to bring. We're sport, we're good at that. Yeah, We go, we need someone to do this. And, and by the way, They've got a track record of doing that, but have they got a track record in the sorts of environments which is similar to the one that we want to create, you know? So there's some people who can do that really successfully in certain environments but won't be able to do it somewhere else, you know, and I think you've done some work with the cohesion stuff. Mm-hmm. and But most of the time it's people being lazy in regard to having clear expectations of what they actually want the person to do. And if they bring the person in and they're not able to do that but they're able to bring something else and that enables them to – stay within the environment. Well, that's a bonus, but that's not the plan. Yeah. That's just luck you know, in that sense. So we, we recruit them on what they're prepared, on what they can bring to the team, but what we, they only survive on what they're prepared to give to the team. So the bring and the give becomes So if they're not able to give over time, they can't stay in the team. They just can't, regardless of whatever it is. And And the majority of people who play that role in elite sport are effectively role players. Even the great players are role players. Um, you know, the, the biggest stars in the game are the ones who, you know, they recognise that they're stars and play a role because of that. And I saw that a lot with um, when I was at Fremantle with Matthew Pavlich, who was a great player, mm-hmm. but he actually started to work out really early in the piece that he could actually make every player around him a better player by just because of the attention that he was attracting because of his wonderful qualities. And, and I'm thinking that makes you a really special player, you know, that if you that it does, you don't have to have the ball in your hand to actually um, show how good you are. So basically I now run, um, and it's teaching effectively, I do teaching programs. you um, can call it coaching, you can call it mentoring, whatever it is, but I think there's a wonderful honour in teaching for people for leaders who want to create the habits on identity for themselves which are a pure and true expression of who they are. And and it works very, very much and recognises that there's a level of vulnerability in all of that. Um, there's gonna be a there's gonna be times where you're gonna question yourself, um, but I think you're gonna do that anyway. And you then get to build around you the sorts of teams and structures and systems and processes which enable you to build trust and and I think if there's any one thing that an organization is seeking to create as an outcome is high levels of trust and that's personal trust that says in do I trust you that you're a good human being and do I trust that you have the capability to do the job it's strategic trust do we trust trust the plan you know that the, the because often at a time when we're really struggling, uh, the plan's the best thing we've got. You know, if we're not winning, if we're not winning in the moment or we're not a chance of winning the next game in a real sense, can we trust the plan that that will enable us to do that in a time period that we're comfortable with? And we get to see that. Do we trust the systems? Are our systems and our symbols and our processes aligned to all the stuff that we're actually talking about? So a lot of people actually go, yeah, no, trust is important for us. But then they they get their worst people getting paid the most because they're selling their shit. You know, I just get, you know, that, that kills all that stuff. And from, if you get those three things, you'll then have high levels of cultural trust, and I think that's ultimately what you want to get. And the very high-performing teams, you can sense that, can't you? you oh, can Absolutely. Alan um, Pickett plays his first game for Richmond in a grand final and gets votes. Yeah. Cause there was just high trust in the capacity of not only the player to do his role, play the role that they wanted him to play, but the team to actually accept that the coaches were going to do that. And that meant that there was going to be some disappointed people who weren't going to get a game and also high levels of acceptance from within the team structure that they believe the coaches were, were doing all that for the right reasons. So I teach a, a program where the ultimate outcome is about what I call performance trust. Yeah. There's high, there's trust, but it relates to performance and, um, and I'm really enjoying it and uh, and like the thing I'm getting outcomes. It's it's not um, there's no magic wand in it. I just teach it and then you hope that um, you know there's enough understanding of it to to do it. But it's also doing it in a way where um, it shouldn't take it's not a, it's not ten hours a day to do it, it's just little bits bit regularly yeah. here. And, 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 a lot, and a big part of it, to be honest, and, and I never expected this when I started, was it's to try and cut through all of the overwhelm. You know, the people, there's, this, yeah, there's just this sense of the busy, you know, and I like the Seth Godin line, you know, busy is the new lazy. And, and, um, and how do people actually take the time to, to go deep into their, their own thinking? You know whether they're on track with any of those things and when when their inbox in and their phone and everything else is screaming at them the whole time or buzzing or humming and doing things you know that you don't they're not taking the time out for their own development
0: it's kind of crazy isn't it we send millions of people to work every day to sit in front of a computer and wait for emails to come in
1: yeah and they're all working on other people's time frames you now so if i send you an email Whose time frame is it? You know, so, so, so even even that one. Uh, uh, the first habit is just asking yourself on a daily basis what's important, because otherwise, what's important will be, you know, the first um, email in your inbox. It'll be the noisiest thing. be the first person who walks in your office. Whereas, just to give yourself that five percent, now what's important here? And and you know, anyone wants to talk about life balance? I don't think there's such a thing. But but recognizing that there's going to be tension, you know. You, you, the who you want to be, the work you want to do uh, your family, yeah, your well-being all, all that sort of stuff. If you're not actually spending time on those things not, and I'm pretty open about this but I, I, my what's important changed very very suddenly you know when my, my 16 year old boy changed gender so my Lockie is now Evie and I, I realised it's that what's important are dramatically different because I, I've now got to reflect on what type of parent I have to be, something which I pretty much thought I'd sorted at that stage, my youngest child. um, And so that's been a real journey for her. And she's got a lot of support and a lot. But, you know, from our point of view, it's actually been, um, you know, I had to work out what I needed, she needed from me as a parent, but also I had to, you know, the conversations I I, I would have with her, and I still do, is can you make yourself easier to parent, you know, because in the end, you know, it's hard to parent you if we don't know what's going on for you. And, um, and so therefore even that conversation, because that, that's a change everything scenario uh, would be, you know, you, you can't just think you're going to bumble your way through that. You know, you have to think deeply about, about that. You know, you have to learn new things and find out and talk to people and study it and read and, listen to podcasts go and see experts all those sorts of things yeah it's interesting you say that that whole kind of idea around
0: you know particularly at work um that idea of busy and the fact that there aren't enough days you know i feel like a lot of managers in particular they get into that management role they kind of default to that yeah checking the inbox check you know checking off time sheets whatever they need to do and they lose time to actually lead and coach and have those conversations that you're talking about. It could be with, it could be with a daughter, it could be with someone on your team. So then the context is gone. They lose the context of what the, the energy of the team is and what the team needs. And then it kind of snowballs from there. And, and, and that becomes really tough. So you're already under the gun because you probably feel unprepared. And, and I, I talk about this a lot in that it's kind of stupid to me that you get a management role when you're 40, you know, in a big, big company. So you got to do your time, you got to do your 15 years in the job. You know, you haven't interviewed mm. someone for basically that whole 15 years because you've been the doer of the job, not the manager. Now we say, we're going to let you build this team and we're going to let you lead them because, because you've proven that you can do the job we haven't set that person up for success in any way, shape, or form.
1: Yeah, exactly. We don't play, you know, you know, for, you know, Marlon Pickett might be an example, but he is 27. You know, he has, you know, he's got four kids, you know, there's, there's actually, he wasn't an 18 year old coming in and playing. He was physically able to do it and he, he played high level. He played against men since. So, so the so the, there was exceptions which made that, but straight away people went back to the history of it, and the history of it was guys playing when they were kids, still, right. you know, playing on the big stage when they still were kids. So he, he actually was really well set up for it. So minimized all of those those factors. But you're right; you, you get people who have never had to, you know, even interview people who have to make choices on them, and 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 I'd been doing that for a long time and still mucked it up. So of you, you have, you know, you and, and most of the time. It, it, the, the part of it is that a lot of the things which are the busy stuff is the stuff which gives us our easy rewards as well. So yeah, I'm busy, but some of that stuff is, um, just simply, you know, we, we feel a sense of progress, you know, we, we can whip through the inbox and we can get those emails. We can make those 10 phone calls. The adrenaline's pumping, you know, we're making progress here, you know, the, 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 the faster, higher, stronger sort of ideal of, Elite sport actually relies on the slower, deeper, wiser to make it actually happen. And then so and so the high performance happens in the moment, but it's at deep conversations. And you, you would have faced it. Well, you, 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 people look at hindsight and say, How did you make that decision? You go, well, it was 50-50, I made the wrong choice, or it was 60-40 and this and the 40 got up. You know, whatever it might have been. And I, I don't punish myself so much on those. The ones I actually give myself a bit of grief over is when I actually didn't step into into the conversations which required a bit of courage or they – my ego took control or I, um, you know, I was, uh, you know, I got angry. They're, They're probably the three things I reckon really, like ego, anger and lack of courage. And why is that? Because they're actually hard. <laughs> and everyone wants to talk about the imposter syndrome of leadership as a thing. You always feel like an imposter. Well, why? Because you're actually doing hard stuff most of the time. And if you're doing something which is hard all the time, you're always going to wonder whether that you're up to that level. So one of the reasons why this stuff's not easy is because it's not easy. So the only way you actually do it is if you get to practice it. And... And, and I just have a little routine. The stuff that is important in your life, make it an opt-out scenario, not an opt-in scenario. And the classic one is exercise. So I'm a morning exercise person. But a few years ago, we started doing some work with um, a group who were trying to get the organ donation numbers up in Australia, which are poor. Around 10% of people donate their organs in Australia. Mm-hmm. And there was a big program, and because and it's a situation, it takes a bit of effort to make it happen. And I read at the same time that some countries have an opt-out system, not an opt-in system. And the countries with an opt-out system, it's eighty or ninety percent of people donate their organs, and the opt-in systems, it's ten to twenty percent. Well, that's that's a there's a big mindset in that. So why don't we opt out of exercise in the morning? So, and if you've got a mindset that you're going to exercise in the morning, unless there is a reason not to, and there's often reasons not to, because you, something's come up, you're not feeling well, there's weather's shocking out there, you don't want to get on the bike, whatever it might be, but at least it's a conscious choice not to, and you're doing it most times. And so I think the same thing with any form of routine and habit is to make it an opt-out scenario for you. And so you, opt, you, you allocate two hours in your diary every week, which I don't know anyone who can't do that. And you might spread it out or you're going to say i'm going to write somewhere between 500 and a thousand words on something which i'm deeply interested in or i'm going to put a podcast together like you have you have now got an opt out mindset on it mm. you've got this podcast is happening unless there's a reason for it not to it's now part of your routine isn't it it's part of your, and you, you're saying before we got on air it's one of the best things you've ever done so so why don't we have the same mindset to things that we genuinely know will improve our performance or our well-being? And this actually also came out because I've, I've had issues with my well-being, as in I've had to deal with mental illness over time. So from, from that perspective, I worked out that I, I needed to bring back the things that I wanted to focus on because because uh, so it's such a distracted mindset. So I now call it a bit of the gift of depression, if you like, you know, because it forced me down this track. And... I think now about that, that if I, I could easily just spend the whole week just answering emails, flicking through social media. Um, but if you're a leader of an organization and you're not assessing, it only takes you 10 minutes every week, if you're not assessing how the 10 most important people in your organization are going, I don't think you're doing your job. Because you need to prepare yourself for whatever conversations you're potentially having with them. So the next time you get to talk to them, you go, yeah, by the way, this was terrific what you did on this or we need you to pick up a little bit on Because you've prepared yourself for that conversation because you've just spent 10 minutes assessing how they're tracking. Well, I reckon that might be the most important 10 minutes of your week. But I doubt many leaders are actually doing it. But if you're in an elite performance environment and you weren't spending most of your time assessing how people are going, to prepare you for the important conversations you're then going to have with them, you'll last 10 minutes. So why wouldn't we actually have that expectation who are carrying around million-dollar salaries to actually prepare themselves and say, okay, here are my 10 most important. These are the people who are driving the business here. I'm just going to I'm just going to write down a few notes on each of them on how I think they're going. And if I have to give them feedback, have I got a mechanism by which I actually do that. Not in not in that sit down formal every so often it's that, but mainly just in this the little one minute conversation, two minute conversations, five minute conversations. 100% and there's just an anecdote that I was
0: thinking of that I read recently. We probably revisit these guys too often in this conversation, but the All Blacks, and there was you know, an article come out about that they don't they don't get the team speech before the game, and the the idea is basically if we haven't prepared now, you know, not ninety minutes before the game, what can I give you that would prepare you anyway? So if our work isn't done by the time we get on the bus, again, that that is a very mature, uh, very well considered, well thought out environment that they've built over years and years and years. And so it's not something that just anyone can pick up if they're working at ComBank and, and try to do. But I think the idea is really interesting in that, yeah, have we actually done the work? And, and that mindset from a manager perspective, it, it can be covered off in those little, those little conversations rather than just, yeah, sitting there accepting meetings to go into your calendar. So you go and sit in a room and talk about bullshit for an hour um, which unfortunately is still what most managers do.
1: Yeah, and because it's easy. Default position and default mindsets. You know, if someone had said to you 20 years ago that the All Blacks don't do a big, you know, even assume that there's this big inspirational speech by the coach who's just going to nail and get them up to a, you know, a frenzy, you know, so they're ready to go out and compete. Yeah, if, if you had, did, I don't know if you saw it, did you watch the grand final? Did you watch it on the on the weekend at all? Yeah, they had the photo of the Richmond players when they're doing their team photo they're laughing they're tickling each other (laughs) it's just they run out on the MCG and they're having a cackle you know like to think that would happen you know back in the day and by the way I think there is still a little bit of a place for the you know a bit of a rah-rah from time to time you know you do have to lift groups to shift groups you know there is a bit of a you know And let's not just assume that they're not knowing where they're going. So there'd still be that, you know, there'd be be some pretty pointed conversations, you know, in in those environments. Um, But in the main, they're, you know, they're they're educational, they're teaching. Uh, But just to have, uh, you know, the the Steve Kerr joy is just wonderful. Well, both of those things really,
0: you know, the, the vulnerability and preparation that goes into, A, admitting that. You don't give the big rousing team talk, and that you've prepared your guys well enough in your mind before they even get on the bus. It's a huge leap forward from where we've been. And then, like you said, Steve Kerr, even using that word "joy" in and around the locker room environment and the NBA again, that's a, a massive move forward for you know this new kind of emotional, emotionally intelligent coaching profile that we're trying to move everyone closer towards.
1: Yeah, and I've done, and it might be just a product of situation as well, but I've done a fair bit of work on on just what, on vulnerability or on what it actually means. And and it's, as I mentioned before, it, first of all, it gives you a, a chance of being a, a full expression of who you are, you know, a much closer interpretation of who you are as you present yourself to other people. Secondly, shit happens in our life which we've got no control over, just nothing. And we like to think our lives as being somehow controlled, but they're just so out of control in so many levels. And and the wonderful thing, which is the human being, is our capacity to handle and deal with stuff, if you like. But they all they all play a role. Um, but the final one, and almost the most important one, is that it's it's actually an invitation for people to help you. You know, but by being a little bit vulnerable in 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 areas that you may be battling with or struggling with you know, then saying to people, well, you know, can, can you help me here? And that doesn't mean as a leader, you come in and go, look, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, that, that's a step too far, you know, but you, you come and say, look, I'm, I'm actually struggling with this thing. Can
0: you help me? Uh, a mate of mine, another Aussie, actually, he has a great way of of positioning this and he says, you know, I've, I've got some ideas about this, but I'm, I'm just a little bit apprehensive about this. Can you help me? That's cool. And, yeah. and that works in, that works in an entrepreneurial yeah. sense, it works in a sales sense, it works in a in, in any, any line of business that you're in uh, as a leader, really uh, as someone who's trying to be a leader, uh, it works in all those senses.
1: So it cuts out, it cuts out sort of that default thinking. I, I'd say default thinking is probably the biggest enemy of trust because yeah, basically what it's saying is I've got the answer, but the problem's changed. <laughs> you know, so right answer, wrong problem, you know. And so what we're doing is we're ignoring our own ignorance when that actually happens. And, and I... You wouldn't do that in any other aspect of your life. Why would you think you'd do it, you know, when you're trying to actually be the leader, yeah.
0: Uh, Yeah, we could talk for hours, mate, but um, I'll let you get on with your day. Where can people find you? So going back to you you saying that, uh, you know, if you could start to talk about the things that you're passionate about in a particular way and other people would find you, and, and that's exactly how I... Came across you was you know on LinkedIn and and the great content that you put there. So people that want to go and explore what you're up to, where can they find yeah,
1: you? My website's design CEO one word com Australia, um, and LinkedIn. I, I deliberately put that out there in, in such a way that it's a um, a lot of metaphor, obviously from sport, but just also art. I put a lot of my artwork out there as well, and. Um, and, and it's really just to try and get people thinking. So I don't um, I, I don't sell as such. You know, I, I probably just say, well, this is the stuff I come back to that thought. Here's the stuff I'm really interested in. Um, if you're interested in it, well, I don't have to sell it to you in that way. Uh, and then we, we have the conversation about it. It's just Cameron at designceo.com.au just on email or just via LinkedIn. And um, I'm, I'm responsive because I most of the time when people come to you in, in regard to a leadership issue, it's it's normally quite pressing, and um, and they may be lacking their own, they may be lacking personal confidence themselves. You know that, and, and sometimes you can actually even lift the, the person's conversation, a, you know, a confidence just in one conversation, and um, and uh, bring a bit of the um, just a little bit of reality and clarity, perhaps, to what can be look a fairly oblique world. At different times. So that's really where my approach is, and uh, and really nice. Like to think I'm nice and accessible in that sense.
0: Well, thank you for this, mate. I uh, I
1: have learnt a ton. I'm going to be stewing on this conversation for some time. And well done on the work you're doing. I think it's um, it's it's very generous and uh, it's a wonderful gift for for people uh, who um, enjoy what I'd say is the real learnings from elite sporting environments and as they apply to their own lives and um, Away from the bullshit metaphor and into the into the into the real stuff.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. You take care. Thanks.